everyone. Welcome to Biotech Banter. This podcast features top experts to help you learn how to ensure success in clinical manufacturing. It's hosted by Biocentric, a collaborative contract development and manufacturing organization focused exclusively on cell therapy. For today's episode, we wanted to give you a chance to listen to our most recent webinar on the role of platform processes in cell therapy. If you'd prefer to watch the webinar instead, you can head over to biocentric.com slash platform webinar. That's B-I-O-C-E-N-T-R-I-Q dot com slash platform webinar. There you can view the entire discussion on demand. Otherwise, keep listening to hear Alex Clarer, Biocentric's Vice President of Business Strategy and Innovation, as he moderates a lively discussion. We brought on two experts as panelists, Dr. Tabby Hassan, who is the Vice President of Cell and Gene Therapy Operations at City of Hope, and Michael Kuo, the Senior Vice President of Manufacturing at Vita Therapeutics. They discuss the benefits of adopting platform processes, including reducing development and manufacturing costs, accelerating timelines, getting to patients faster, and more. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Alex Clare. I'm the Vice President of Business Strategy and Innovation at Biocentric. I'll be moderating the webinar today. A quick intro to our topic today and then hand it over to our lovely panelists to introduce themselves. Most, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the description associated with the, uh, with the webinar invite that we're going to be talking today about platform processes. We wanted to set the stage a little bit, you know, given that current manufacturing techniques are fairly costly and bespoke. And before cell therapies can be mass produced to reach a lot larger audience, we need to address and overcome our reliance on this uh, extremely tailored approaches and product by product process development, analytical development techniques. Current approved therapies have demonstrated that commercialization strategies being employed right now are not resulting in a reliable and scalable uh, supply of therapies. And in this conversation, we're going to explore what will happen if therapy developers with similar products move to platform processes and adopt standard protocols, methods, uh, and procedures and perform them in the same way on the same type of equipment uh, as adopted in the biologics industry. This is what we're going to refer to as platform processes throughout this webinar. And we want to make that distinction from platform technologies, which we're going to retreat, treat as referring to the, a core piece of equipment or intellectual property that's used across multiple products in, uh, independent of the protocol or method applied. And here at Biocentric, at least our hypothesis is the, that the adoption of platform processes would cut development and manufacturing costs minimize skill gaps, and help address workforce shortages, and most importantly, allow developers and scientists to spend more time focusing on the unique aspects of their product and contribute to its effectiveness. And we hope to enable that through the Elite platform that we've been developing. Uh, and we assembled Michael and Tabby here to help us shed light on the impact of adopting platform processes and help us think the best through the best path forward. Excuse me. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce our two panelists today. They'll help us dive into the benefits and challenges. Tabby, do you, uh, could you start us off with an introduction? 
Sure, really quickly. I'm Tabby Asan. I'm the Vice President of Cell and Gene Therapy Operations at City of Hope. Um, and what I oversee is a team of about 100 or so, uh, which puts us in a as a fairly large academic GMP facility that does everything from process and analytical development, GMP manufacturing, QC, QA, and then uh, regulatory fairs as well. At City of Hope, we have kind of three areas of products that we manufacture. City of Hope is a comprehensive cancer center, so we have a lot of autologous CAR T. We do a lot of stem cell production because we're in California and CERM heavily funds that effort. And then we have um, uh, very much invested in viral vaccines and viral vectors. And so um, put together, we support not only City of Hope PIs, but we also uh, manufacture and produce for external academics as well as small to mid-sized biotechs. Thank you, Tabby. Michael, could you introduce yourself as well? Sure, happy to. Thanks, Alex. Um, first of all, I, I'd like to thank uh, Biocentric for putting on this uh, webinar uh, to discuss this very interesting and very important topic that I'm quite passionate about. And it's a real pleasure for me to join Tabby today on this webinar. So uh, looking for a very uh, productive session today. Um, my name is Michael Kuo. I'm uh, currently the Senior Vice President of Manufacturing at Vita Therapeutics. Uh, Vita is a, a Baltimore-based cell engineering company uh, developing therapeutics to replace defective cells with functional cells. Our lead neuromuscular platform, VTA100, uh, focuses on using autologous iPSC technology and genetic engineering to generate muscle precursor cell-like cells to repair and regenerate muscle in patients with limb girdle muscular dystrophy 2A. Uh, we aim to also expand into other degenerative muscular conditions as well as developing allogeneic hypoimmunogenic cell lines to treat more patients across multiple disease indications. Uh, just a bit about my background, I've been uh, spending the last 25 plus years of my career developing uh, various cell and gene therapies, both in the academic setting um, at the start of my career and also the last 15 plus years at various industry company uh, focusing on developing novel therapeutics uh, to support early to late stage clinical studies. Uh, my expertise kind of spans across the whole CMC area, uh, having worked uh, also for a platform technology company uh, previously, and also work closely with many of the reputable CDMOs in our field. Uh, I'm happy to uh, share my thoughts and perspective with you all today uh, regarding how we can best use the platform process and technologies in our journey to the clinic and commercialization. So great to be with you all. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike. So I wanted to start off with maybe asking your opinions as to what factors within the cell therapy industry have led us to generate such a disparate array of process and analytical technologies used across relatively, you know, relatively homogenous approved pool of products. So Mike, do you mind starting us off by talking a bit about the evolution of process and analytical uh, development that... Uh, and how that looks from initial development through the BLA submission for a cell therapy for our audience who might not be familiar. Sure. Thank, thanks, Alex, for that question. Um, I think, you know, first of all, we, we need to understand that um, our industry is really made out of, uh, you know, many companies that are at various stages of development. 
with very different level of expertise and infrastructure in place and targeting different disease indications and based on the different uh, therapeutic modalities, right? So there's a lot of different uh, starting point that we're coming from here. So with that said, I think the starting point of process and analytical development um, will be very different for each company uh, based on where it fits in the overall spectrum. Uh, in general, um, if you're a early stage company uh, just getting off the ground, uh, most likely your manufacturing process and the analytical methods are at the research scale and most likely not fully de developed yet. Uh, probably with a, a lot of variability still built in within your manufacturing process and assays. So that's not atypical uh, for early stage companies. Uh, in fact, you probably don't have all the assays that uh, you need to fully understand and characterize your process, your product. Um, and typically, I think that all of the critical process parameters and your critical quality attributes or CQAs uh, within your manufacturing process are very well characterized and understood at this early stage. So in order to kind of uh, translate from a, a small research scale process and with these rudimentary test methods into something that is reproducible of high quality that can be used to support clinical studies and commercialization, um, the process and the test method needs to be further optimized and probably uh, scale up uh, further and uh, um, qualify to make sure that you know, you can uh, reduce your process and assay variability uh, and to improve the overall quality and control uh, within your process and assays. And I think finally, to make sure the, the scale uh, that you intend to manufacture is really uh, aligned with your uh, target product profile that you have set out to accomplish. Um, so on the other hand, if you're a large, a uh, company, late stage company that has a very well established manufacturing process and methods. So most likely your process has been scaled up appropriately already uh, with the appropriate, you know, GMP compliant quality systems, your aseptic controls in place and assays has already been uh, probably qualified to a certain extent. Um, but however, I think there's still um, opportunity for further optimization uh, to really drive uh, further efficiency within your manufacturing process and reduce that variability within your assay as well. Um, so, you know, what I uh, typically see is that at the late stage, uh, the bulk of that work will be evolving around um, optimizing a very specific set of conditions and uh, process parameters to really improve the reproducibility and the robustness of your process. Um, so I think, again, you know, with the advancement of all these tools and technologies uh, that's uh, evolving so quickly these days, uh, there's ample of opportunity for all the companies out there uh, to further refine their manufacturing process and assays. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, we really do want to drive down the cost of manufacturing and testing. So. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike. And I. I do always think that we're very lucky as an industry to have the support of 
you know, the regulatory agency, Sieber, Peter Marks, in uh, making sure there are pathways for us to treat patients, right? How do we move from, like you said, what are emerging process and analytical techniques and still see and still allow us to rapidly treat and heal patients with very effective therapies. And like you said, you know, if I heard you correctly, is that we're once you're into that, into clinical manufacturing, clinical development, you're really focused on increasing the robustness and reducing the cost uh, for pa- ultimately for patients such that um, they can realize this product. And it, we're moving from that point of variability in preclinical work into a more robust, more reliable process. And so, Tavi, could you talk to a little bit about some of the critical considerations for developers in determining what, uh, when the process and analytical techniques are ready for to make that transition and have been tuned enough, but not, you know, we're not overdeveloping, over, uh, overworking this process and delaying uh, delaying patient access. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, everything that Michael said resonates and you have to address in one way or another as you start doing early phase trials or first in human trials. So for example, we talk about reproducibility, but the, the real endpoint of early clinical trials is data, right? And so if you don't have a well-defined product that goes into the patient, you cannot interpret it, interpret the noisy data that comes out of it. So you need a fairly reproducible process that you can move forward with. You need analytics that are measuring meaningful attributes so that you could then get those clinical correlates, better understand mechanism of action, therefore better identify CQAs and really hone in on what your product definition is. And so that's really important. So everything that goes into the consideration of going commercial needs to be identified early. Whether how much you address it though, is where you're making the judgment. Because with these early clinical trials, speed is of the essence. We need to actually get it into the patients to really understand what's happening. So to create a commercial process from the onset really delays the availability of that data. However, you also don't want to go in with a process that has major hurdles that will inhibit going commercial when hopefully your product is successful. So what I think about doing is as I get a research level process and we do a lot of phase one early clinical trial material here at City of Hope is, well, what is it that we're trying to assess? How do we qualify the assay substantially enough so that we know that if X equals four on the first run, uh, of the uh, of the sample that it, we repro- reproducibly get that result so that we understand that there's inherent value in the analytics. We also need to make sure that we aren't using these processes that will be a dead end when we get to the end of the phase one trial. So how do we think about the process, the scalability, so that we remove things that would become major regulatory and commercial 
aspects that inhibit the viability as the product matures. And so all of those are taken into consideration. We bring in the research process, we identify um, the critical process parameters, the analytics that we want to measure, and some of the analytics are not going to be on the release panel, but they will be very important product characterization to better understand your product. Um, and then you want to identify those risks and either mitigate those risks or acknowledge those risks as you move forward. And so you put a development plan into place and discuss that strategy. So everything needs to be designed from the onset with the end in mind. Doesn't mean you have to solve every issue from the onset, but you really do need to do the thorough analysis of what are the potential pain points and how you wanna strategize to get to commercial when the opportunity arises. That's really interesting. So the idea that you need to develop it well enough that you can trust your data and have it be reliable. Otherwise, you're going to run into failed trials or you're going to have to increase your, your patient population per trial in order to have that data set that you can really trust. A hundred percent. And versus, then the other element, okay. I'm sorry. And yeah. then the other element is that, you know, the expectations of these early clinical trial um, uh, material is going up from the regulatory perspective. What we could do 20 years ago is not what we can do today in terms of the material we infuse into the patient. So looking at the GMP um, uh, grade of those materials and all of that becomes quite important. And so you're almost trying to thread this needle of the perfect amount of development to go into to make to reduce that time to patient, reduce that time to commercial product and approval. And that I can imagine that is very difficult to to manage, especially with a lot of our sponsors being VC or public funded. You have external pressures uh, on your science, which nobody likes to have. Uh, but that's that is that's very interesting. Very I can imagine very tough to uh, to manage as a you know a lead of the uh, in technical development. Hey, Alex, if I can just add to, mm -hmm. I think, uh, Tabby's uh, uh, discussion there, I really think, you know, um, you know, careful planning from the very beginning is the key, right? Because I think, uh, you know, trying to do things on the fly and be reactive, is it's uh, probably not the best strategy. But yeah, we see a lot of that happening in early stage uh, companies. Uh, so having the ability to kind of, uh, you know, have that end goal in mind and to be able to kind of plan this out carefully from the beginning uh, will save a lot of headache, headaches along the way and then make this more streamlined uh, for the development whole process. It's a great point. Having the, having the end in mind when you start out on your journey. And so I can imagine that instead of having to perfectly manage your development with all the external uh, pressures and still keep up with your, you know, your kind of uh, moral obligation and uh, professional obligation to put this product into, uh, into the market, it would be easy to have a process that provides you that, that reliability earlier on in your development and something that can apply that, you can apply with you know with that with less development work and that'll give you the reliability that you need in your early and mid-phase clinical trials and i feel like we see that a little that in biologics and we're starting to see that in viral vector manufacturing 
where you have companies that have established manufacturing processes. They do some optimization and development work on a product to product basis, and they're able to begin manufacturing with reasonable optimization. And, but we haven't really seen that picked up in cell therapy, despite the, the approvals of, you know, Camryas, Carta, Tecardis. Uh, are there fundamental differences that we're having in cell therapy that explain the lack of platform adoption? Uh, and uh, uh, maybe I'll throw that to you, Tabby, to start. Yeah, you know, I think it's a level of maturity and that we're getting there. So if you start thinking about, you know, for sure on the vector side, we have platforms, but now we're developing, you know, for example, we have a platform on CAR-T manufacturing, on uh, IPSC differentiation to specific phenotypes. Those are emerging, but, you know, a platform is not a platform until it gets used by multiple products, right? And so, um, you can't know that it's a platform until it's been vetted. And, um, but we are getting there on the cell therapy side. I think that, you know, aspects of CAR-T, aspects of TIL production, aspects of NK production are very much turning into platform processes where your modifications, genetic modifications might be distinct but the way you're actually producing uh, or processing the cells is very consistent from process to process. Remember, a platform, at least to me, does not mean that every aspect is identical from product to product, but that you have a foundation, a basis that gets you a big chunk of the way on process development. So it's really key that those processes be robust but again, you only know that after it's gone through multiple products and you can see the commonalities of the process from one to the other. So I'm hopeful that we are on the precipice of developing many more cell therapy platforms. Um, it, does, it does behoove us to really think about it that way so that we can accelerate the products being translated to phase one clinical trials. I think we still have the benefit in cell therapy that a rising tide lifts all boats. And so we are helped by the successes of all the, all the different products as they advance and mature through the regulatory landscape and move towards commercial. So I think from that perspective, we need to think about the platforms being something that can serve the field and be quite helpful as we try to accelerate the number of products that go to phase one. Fantastic. And you mentioned you know, there's a couple platforms out there, but they lack widespread adoption. Is there something that you see needing to change in order to drive that adoption? Is it really just more time, more data? Is there a a key or a, a keystone that we're that we're missing right now. I think a little bit is the follow-on effect, right? Which is the first products move through, that becomes a platform for the next ones. We need to be a little bit careful about the proliferation of so many CDMOs in the field before we're ready with demand. Uh, because what that does is it silos the knowledge 
that might serve the platforms. So thinking about that might be a really good aspect. You know, it's going to be natural also as many of these companies stand up their own GMP um, facilities that the knowledge becomes internal in-house. And again, that decreases the opportunity of other companies benefiting. But what's very uh, important is that the FDA in its Appropriations Act is really discussing the development of platforms of, of biologics and cell therapy products and how that can be leveraged and the benefits that companies would have from utilizing those platforms. So we'll see how that pans out, but that can be really instrumental in pushing the field forward on leveraging these platforms. Mike, I saw that uh, when Tabby mentioned the dissemination or potential lack thereof of uh, know-how, you it kind of hit struck a chord with you. Is there? Yeah, no, no. Thank you for noticing that. <laughs> uh, certainly, you know uh, what Tabby's uh, Tabby's describing is this kind of natural uh, maturation progression of the field, where we're slowly uh, accumulating that uh, body of knowledge. Uh, through osmosis and just the, the natural process of uh, maturing a field. But I, I do think that, you know, as our kind of ecosystem evolve and change in, in developing these novel uh, cell and gene therapies, there is an opportunity that we can potentially accelerate the path uh, to adopt these uh, uh, platform uh, processes much quicker. So, so those uh, uh, company or developer that are uh, in the driver's seat in, in, in uh, putting that out there, um, I think they may be a good uh, a central point to be able to uh, gather the masses and, and to kind of test out these uh, uh, protocols and equipments and processes, right? Um, so I think there's a way that we can potentially um, rethink about our way of approaching this and I cannot agree uh, more with Tabby in terms of, you know, this is not about individual success of each company. It's how do we work together to advance the field? Especially, I think what we're talking about, um, as Tabby mentioned earlier, is it's is not uh, things that are extremely proprietary or IP sensitive. These are some of the best practices that we all rely upon uh, as a foundational uh, to your uh, manufacturing process. So these are things that I think the more that we uh, come together and validate those processes, then that will help all the company in the field move much faster. And also the regulators will be much more comfortable uh, with the process that we're uh, you know, proposing and that reduces your kind of regulatory burden as well. So I think there's a huge driver to kind of move to this model. And I think we're all quite uh, uh, vested to make sure that happens. If I can add one other thing, which is what is actually a great counterbalance to kind of this disparate learning across the field um, is that the workforce is really starting to develop. And as the workforce develops, it's natural that people move from uh, affiliation to affiliation and the learning spread. So that is a fantastic way of really kind of harmonizing the field as well, is that there is this um, cadre of scientists and engineers who are really coming up in a time where cell therapy is known and established. Whereas those of us who are a little bit older, it was, it was dicey for quite a couple of decades. 
as to how we were going to get there. And so it's fantastic to see these folks who are really solution focused, have a very strong knowledge base and the fundamentals of what the issues are and how to address them. And as they pollinate across companies, we're really going to uh, elevate the, the understanding and the quality of um, the input that our workforce provides on the processes and the analytics. Uh, I can just add one more thing, sorry. Yeah, of uh, course. You know, as Tabby mentioned about the CDMO, I actually do think they actually play a very uh, important role uh, in, in, in adopting and spreading these uh, platform across uh, these companies, right? So, you know, with early stage companies, again, typically we outsource our manufacturing to a CDMO to better manage our kind of upfront capital investment until we can get some, you know, meaningful uh, proof of concept data before uh, we internalize our manufacturing operations. Um, so here's a great opportunity where the CDMO, typically, if you select the right partner, have the right expertise and experience with a lot of these platform uh, processes that can uh, uh, potentially accelerate that development process, right? Because, you know, instead of for every company trying to figure out where they fit, um, with the right experience CDMO, they know whether this is a likely solution for your process or not. You still have to test and verify, but at least you're planning for success, right? You, you have some confidence that this process may likely to work, or you know what, this is not the right platform and we got to spend a lot of resource to go deeper to really optimize and figure out how it's going to work for your process. So, so CDMO selection, I think, is another very critical aspect of this equation, and we need to make sure that uh, we leverage all the critical players within this ecosystem so that uh, we can help the drug developer uh, accelerate that development timeline. Yeah, and I, you know, building on that, that's a fantastic point. So absolutely, the CDMOs are really important for process and analytics. The concern is to make sure that we're not, uh, the selection is really critical. So I, I've been privy to uh, multiple stories where the wrong CEO, the, the wrong CDMO is selected in the fact that they can't support the manufacturing process and analytics that are needed. And what that does is that puts in delays and cost burdens as we're trying to get it to the patient. So I think that it is extremely important, the role the CDMOs play, mm -hmm. but in addition to that, it is extremely important that the product developers be very thoughtful of their selection for CDMO um, because that will in many ways uh, um, affect their ability to be successful. You know, it's a it's a tripod, right? The product, the process, the analytics. And, you know, if you think about the product developer just being out of the loop on the process and analytics, that's not going to be a good sign for success. They need to be highly invested in the selection and the of the processes and the analytics that are used which might be platform, which may not be platform, but I think that that's key. And so um, I hope the CDMOs can play a central role 
in really pushing things forwards. And we have seen um, several very large CDMOs emerge and be extremely helpful on that front. And so I think that'll be a big key in driving the field forward as well, those unified processes and best practices that are established. It's a really good good point, Tabby. I think you know, for me especially, you know, we we will never have the depth of knowledge about a product as a client has. You know, a lot of a lot of our clients have worked with the same product for 10, 15, 20 years. That isn't something you can replicate in a tech transfer process, no matter how good your tech transfer process is. Uh, and understanding about what the role of a CDMO is in that relationship being, like you said, part of the pronged approach, being able to provide skills, uh, facility, infrastructure, et cetera, quality system, you know, the being a partner in that and not being an owner of or trying to be an owner of the product. Uh, and I think you know we when we met ahead of this webinar, we talked about how big the scope of platform processes can be. Even and we touched a little bit on potentially including more about workforce and the impact of that, given it's the conversation that's been happening uh, in the what in cell therapy around making sure we have a robust workforce, but understanding what skills we need to develop, potentially you know reducing that skill set that you touched on how many uh, skills you you had to learn early on in the industry's development to be able to manufacture these products. And um, it seems like, is it, would it be correct to say that, you know, moving in the direction we have, we've been able to fine tune, augment the skills that we want to carry forward. Uh, and then kind of on that approach, we're, we're entering as an industry, we saw a ton of investment flood in during the pandemic. And we saw, you know, we're in a very different environment now than we were in 2020, 2021. Uh, and we're seeing that maybe, it, are we seeing a difference in approach to process and analytical development that we saw uh, in previous years based on that change in the kind of uh, those external factors that we touched on a little bit earlier? We'll throw it to Mike, to you, Mike. Yeah, so happy to uh, um, take a stab at that question. Um, so, you know, what we just discussed is this, uh, you know, idea that it, it takes a village, really, to to make this happen, right? Um, as a drug developer, you're trying to figure everything out on your own. It's going to be very uh, costly and it's going to be very time-consuming. And so knowing who are all the critical players and partners uh, from early on, whether that's the CDMO, whether that's a technology developer, whether that's a platform developer, whether that's a critical reagent supplier, you know, understand their roles and responsibility in your journey. I think that speaks to what you were saying earlier, Alex, that, you know, we all need to know what our role and responsibility in this process I mean, ultimately, the sponsor will have to take the the, the ownership in, in driving this across the finish line. But with that clear identification of the key players, um, you know, we, we should be able to leverage the expertise and the experience of all these uh, external uh, partners to streamline the whole process. 
And with, you know, this very challenging, uh, you know, funding environment that we're all faced with, uh, we got to be smart about how we're spending our resources and time. And, and so this, you know, from my perspective, this collaborative approach is the best way that, uh, you know, we can stretch the dollars and make sure uh, we can get from point A to point B in the most uh, linear fashion. If I could build on that, Alex, yeah, which is, um, you know, I think I think that's spot on. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is the emergence of these very specialized tools companies. Right. And when I say tools, I don't mean just devices, you know, certain reagent companies, et cetera. And so being able to incorporate elements into your process that you didn't have to homebrew um, and that you can actually bring in from you know, compliant GMP compatible uh, products from other companies can really um, facilitate the rate at which you can move forward and decrease the development costs um, associated with putting in a process or set of analytics that will get you to early, early phase trials uh, and then also to help you mature from early phase trials to commercial product. So there's a lot of space. And like you said, it takes a village. There are a lot of different elements to our field, different expertise that are brought in, CDMOs, reagent companies, uh, device manufacturers, right, um, uh, et cetera, that all can play a role in really facilitating that translation that we're really trying to hone in on as we go from, uh, you know, the bench to early trials to to later trials to commercial, and so bringing those in in a timely fashion can really be helpful. And that and that's about awareness and making sure people understand what is required and what's available uh, in the field. It's a great point. It's it's fairly recent that we've had tool developers specifically for cell therapy applications. And, you know, they're great partners to have in the ecosystem with us. We have, now we have pharmaceutical, com large pharmaceutical companies, small virtual and virtual biotech companies. We have the CDMOs and we have these tool developers. And I think like that, that's a great analogy is we have this village who's all supporting the prog uh, progression of, you know, innovative therapies. So given, you know, we have this, this uh, vibrant ecosystem now, does the platform sit with any, does the responsibility to develop and drive forward these platforms sit with any individual within the ecosystem? Or is it a collective responsibility? I don't know, Mike, if you want to go first or you want me to sure, go first. Sure. No, ha happy to uh, uh, start. Um, so I, I think uh, we all are on the same page in terms of this is really a collaborative effort, uh, especially knowing each of the uh, you know parties' involvement and what their role is in the process. Um, there's going to be a much uh, clearer uh, delineation in terms of how much they're driving so, you know, all these uh, uh, entities that we're describing with the ecosystem, they have their own goals and objective, right? Um, but yet together, we're looking to achieve a common goal. 
And, and so not a single entity is making all the investment. We're all making investment uh, with a different lens, uh, but looking to achieve the same objective. Ultimately, I, I still think the sponsor has the, the has to bear that uh, responsibility to drive that across the finish line. But knowing who to leverage, who to partner with, and, and how you can make sure if there's any uh, gap in technical expertise, that you're able to identify those gaps early on and ask for help. Uh, quite often company, they're reluctant to admit that they don't have certain expertise and they struggle and they spend time trying to figure things out. And time goes by, uh, you know, investment being made and there's no progress. And that's a, a, a very unfortunate situation that a lot of companies find, find themselves in. So, you know, again, having this understanding of that ecosystem will allow you to have a better roadmap uh, to navigate all the different challenges ahead and be more proactive in uh, solving those problems along the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, agree with everything that you said. I think in a lot of ways, you just need champions. You need individuals to be champions to get those platforms better known, better established, uh, and robust. And I think that that comes down to individuals, much like developing standards, right, uh, as we do in the field, whether NIST does it, ASTM, etc. It's almost an altruistic effort, right? Because it's in addition to your day job that you decide that something is worthy of making known and, and um, uh, uh, facilitating someone else's use. And so I think it's a great question to ask. Unfortunately, I don't think it's a great, there's a great answer of, okay, it's this set of folks within the field who are responsible for doing that. Um, we have to think about if, if the FDA is serious about wanting to develop these platforms, they need to think about how to incentivize the platform developers um, and, and how they can do that. Um, you know, whether it is uh, um, expedited review of their own products or something else, uh, something to think about. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, for a lot of these types of things, you need individuals who are passionate and champions for a specific aspect and, and drive that forward. And then they'll get the resources to make it happen. So you brought up incentives for platform or uh, for developers to develop platforms. Do you feel that the current regulation and how it's been proposed is sufficient incentive or has it not quite reached the the bar that you're looking for? We won't know until we get there, unfortunately. Um, you know, and I think that the economic landscape and the scientific and technical landscape and the healthcare uh, industry and reimbursement, all of those aspects play a role in deciding, uh, not in deciding, sorry, in helping to establish or working against the establishment of platforms. And so I think it's too complex an equation <laughs> to figure out the answer, but I do think that there's a lot of, lot of uh, different ways that we can push the levers to try to make it move forward. 
And I think the other aspect of this, you know, trying to focus on things that we have influence and control um, uh, includes, I think, you know, the the interaction between the drug developer and the platform developer and technology developers, right? Um, so quite often, historically, it's kind of a one-way street uh, where the technology developer and platform developer provides solutions, but they don't get a lot of feedback. Uh, from the drug developers. But as we continue to kind of push for a two-way street and more of that open dialogue and exchange and sharing of information, um, that not only gonna help the drug developer, but it's also gonna help uh, our, the counterparts, right? These platform developer and the technology developer to better understand how to further improve their technology and platforms. Right, so so they know what uh, and when you know what to spend their energy and resource on, that can uh, further improve the advancement of the field based on the need of the customers, and so I think that is something that we can do today. I've already seen a change, a shift in, in in the dynamics, you know, in recent years, and so that's quite encouraging, uh, and I do believe that will actually make some difference uh, in the short term. I also, you know, one thing, there's one of the questions, which is, you know, how realistic is it for platforms to develop in this field? And so there can be a drive and a desire to make it, but as the field does get more competitive, in some ways it rests with the regulatory agencies because then they will standardize the questions and the expectations of specific categories of products. And from there, uh, uh, people will be forced to use certain platforms and processes and analytics. Um, we see that already in certain analytics. They want a standardized approach for uh, certain metrics. Um, but we, you know, I think in, in large part, as the field gets more competitive, it will be up to the regulatory agency whose, ex whose expectations will set the ways in which those platforms are leveraged. Very interesting, guys. And I think we talked a little bit on what well, we talked. We talked about how there's responsibility throughout the partners within the industry right now. And we, you know, in came up uh, in our earlier discussion around. You know, tool developers at using the example of Milteni in the in the design space associated with the prodigy and the uh, platform that they have put out through uh through their systems uh and so do, what do you feel like is the uh has been the response to uh unilateral uh, platforms like that from technology developers especially when we're looking at all-in-one versus uh, single unit operation or modular process, uh, platform processes. Uh, maybe, Tavi, I think this is something of your particular interest uh, earlier in the week. Yeah, so I, I, I can speak to that a little bit. You know, the value of the platform is in how robust it is. Right. And so I'm not going to speak about any given company, but if the technology is such that the user or the manufacturer has limited ability to adjust it 
and it requires subsequent modification and validation by the original vendor. That really decreases the value of the platform. Not that there isn't a value to the platform, but it decreases the value of the platform across products. Now, keep in mind that kind of locked approach is really helpful for large numbers of autologous products where you're manufacturing over and over and over again, and you want there to be little to no control over the very of uh, varying the parameters within the device. But when you're early stage and you want that platform to work across products, it needs to be fairly robust to have widespread adapt adoption, right? And so that's where you need to think about it. It also decreases the value of the platform if the time it takes to make the tweaks to the platform really delay the progress uh, to getting to, to the patient. So those are the things to think about. It's not really um, about whether it's all-in-one or single-unit operation platforms. It's about the robustness and the flexibility of use uh, and the success of that platform in generating the product of interest, right? Now, one of the things you also have to be careful with is that if your platform is very regimented, that it may not lead to the product that you actually want, right? You might hone in on something that isn't on the dartboard and it's off center. Uh, and, and that's one of the concerns is your product matures, right, from something that might be a very research level process to something that goes into GMP and something that leverages a platform or starts to be really reproducible, that it hones in on the product that you want to find. The problem is a lot of times we don't know the product that we're trying to define. It's attributes that we're not evaluating or don't have a clear line of sight on that are actually going to be modified by the process and might move us away from efficacy. And so understanding that is really important. So having rigidity in your platform is counterproductive. What we need are platforms that are robust. Once you've honed that in for a given product, for sure, lock it down, make it very, very reproducible. But that is once you understand the product that you want, and then you can move forward from there. Thank you. And kind of, we have a question that's in that same vein is our platform processes can be agnostic of whether those unit operations happen all on the same device or on multiple devices, but can we go even one step further and say, can a platform process or should a platform process be completely agnostic of the equipment that it was developed onto? I, I think that that's challenging. Um, at, at some level, uh, you want unit operations that can be adapted on various devices, but um, it becomes complicated about the process uh, and how you manage that within your manufacturing space. Uh, it's simplest to think about it as equipment-based, but you know we don't do that for everything. Many centrifuges are interchangeable, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you start getting to cell concentration devices, 
you might become a little bit more uh, vendor specific and defined. Um, and then of course, when you go to the all-in-ones, right? So if you go that range of, well, you can use any centrifuge you want to have an all-in-one on this device that's not changeable, that kind of spans the space. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to think about processes without thinking about equipment. And to that point, I think uh, we all agree that this is not a static uh, process, right? Um, things will evolve over time. Uh, platform developer are looking to further advance and make themselves more relevant in this field. And and so with uh, the different trial and error that you know we're all uh, testing, this will allow us to further advance and make these processes more robust. So today may be, you know, this process with equipment A, but tomorrow there may be some uh, even better data with equipment B with the same process. So it just, you know, having the commitment to stay current uh, with information, what's out there, what people are doing, uh, and really understand how that applies to your application, right? It may work for a company next door, but it may not work for you. Uh, so you have to kind of, take the information that you learn and test it and validate it for your own use. I think that's really important. We, we often talk about the core function of a piece of equipment and, you know, what is, what is that piece of equipment doing to your object of interest that it's manipulating? Um, and to your point, we're, we should always be progressing the equipment and making sure that your core functionality has enough analogs that, as you do progress equipment, you are able to not completely jeopardize comparability. Right. And and just, again, uh, touch upon a really critical point that Tabby mentioned earlier. It's not about all the bells and whistles, right? It's about the performance and the quality of the product that you can generate using those technology and processes. So again, I think a lot of times people see the fancy equipment the, and, and they quickly equate that to quality, but that's not always the case. That's a great point. And uh, you know, we're we're at uh, about six minutes to the hour, and I want to first off thank both uh, Tabby and Michael for the thoughtful discussion. And before we transition over to uh, answer some of the questions that have been submitted, I wanted to ask if either of you had any final thoughts uh, that you'd like to convey about the topics or uh, anything else ancillary related. Uh, I'll I'll go first. You know, the idea of platforms is part of a bigger discussion about how we can facilitate translation of uh, product concepts into the clinic. And I think keeping an eye on ways to uh, accelerate that process, decrease the costs, move it forward quickly are always advantageous for the field. And so um, I appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion and really talk about it and and engage with others about what might might work and what might not work. Um, but it's really about um, trying to get things and, and accelerating the flux of translation. And I think for me, there are a couple of key takeaways. Um, the first one is um, making sure that, you know, you spend adequate amount of time working on your assays, right? Those are the measuring stick to be able to really uh, determine whether your process is working and the quality of your, of your final drug product. 
and quite often uh, the asset gets left behind. And, uh, you know, that's something that uh, I would advocate to do it uh, earlier and uh, spend a, a good amount of resource on that. The second one is the idea of, uh, you know, trying to get it right the first time. Uh, I think that's where the, these platform technology and processes um, will give you a higher probability of success uh, if it's indeed the right tool uh, for your application. And, and so, you know, having the ability to do that right the first time will avoid potential downstream uh, comparability uh, exercise that you may have to do down the road if you plan that ahead and demonstrate that is the right platform for you. Um, third thing I think uh, we touched upon was the whole ecosystem. Uh, really, you know, identify who those critical partners are and be able to engage them early on. Don't wait until you're stuck. I think at that point, that's too late already. Uh, you need to form that relationship much earlier in the process and leverage throughout the, whole, the entire journey. And then lastly, you know, the last point that I'll make is, you know, not all the, the platform processes will work for you. So you have to do your work to make sure that you identify the right technology and process to use in your application. Thank you both. And I might try and just squeeze in this one question because I think it is very pertinent and, and similar to how you uh, were closing up there, Michael. Um, what tools can you use to make sure that your process and analytics can be and should be transferred onto a pro platform and be right first time, like you mentioned? Um, you know, I think the better you know your product, the easier it is to evaluate that, right? Because you understand what the CQAs are. The less you understand the pro your product, the more likely you are to accept that platform, but that not may not be in your best interest. I think it needs to go back to the functional assays, whether in vivo or in vitro, that really helped you move that product definition forward. And so I think it's not as simple as, you know, here's a, a set of assays. And if those line up, the platform's good to go. As the product developer, that's your responsibility is understanding whether that output material is in line with your definition and your product concept. And, you know, that's one of the things that inhibits us from using platforms on many products right now is that that depth of understanding isn't there. And so therefore it becomes a bit of a risk uh, because we can't fully characterize the product well enough to our understanding. Fantastic. Thank you, Tabby. Uh, and so I think with that, we will end the webinar. Thank you everybody who, uh, who attended and we will have the recording shared by the end of the week. Thank you again, Mike and Tabby. I hope everybody has a great rest of your day. Great. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. You can stay tuned for the next one by following us on social media. You can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter under Biocentric. That's B-I-O-C-E-N-T-R-I-Q. Or you can visit us at biocentric.com. Until next time, we hope this information and advice helps you on your path to clinical manufacturing.